We're going to hear the Bible read uh, now from uh, Joshua chapter 24. Rosemary and Andrew are going to read for us. Um, and if you want to follow along, it's on page 231 of the Bibles from out in the foyer. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges and officials of Israel and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, and I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Continuing on. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us out and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us in our entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord, because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, 
You were not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you if you forgive the Lord and serve foreign sorry, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there at Shechem he drew up a decree and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in a book of the law of a book of the law of God. Then he took the large stone and set it up under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. Well, what do you think? Is the gospel message, the Christian message, is it mostly a message of a free gift or is it mostly a message of a demand, an expectation, a command? The Christian message that we believe, that we've received, that we try and share with others, is it most of all a gift from God or is it most of all a demand from him? And how are they connected? We've seen as we've gone through Joshua that God is a promise maker. And we've seen again and again that God is the promise keeper. Because he's a promise keeper, they entered the land, chapters 1 to 4. Because he's a promise keeper, they took the land, chapters 4 to 12. Because he's a promise keeper, they possessed the land. Chapters 13 to 21 last week. And in this last section, because he's the promise keeper and has kept his promise, the people must keep the land by their response. And so in this very last chapter, Joshua gathers all the people together and he speaks on behalf of the Lord. Pick it up there in verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. God takes them back right to the very beginning of the people of Israel, to their their pin-up boy, their hero, their hero of the faith, Abraham. But look what he says about him. He lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Now, Graham mentioned that earlier this evening, but did you know that? Had it occurred to you that Abraham, this great figure of the Bible, the beginning of the Israelite race, the beginning of God's promise, his rescue plan for the world that ends up in Jesus, 
worshipped other gods. Not just one god, but many gods. Idols. He was someone who bowed down to statues and prayed to them. Now we don't know how he went about worshipping his idols, his gods. It might have been like I saw in Petra in Jordan where they'd, at the top of a mountain they'd carved out a rock where you would lay the animal, slaughter the animal and there was a groove in the rock so that the blood would flow from the animal into a basin and they would put their hands into the basin so that there was blood covering their hands and then they would all process around their god with the blood calling out to the God for their God to give them fertility or whatever it was that they wanted. And then they would process down the hill with their God. Maybe that's what Abraham did. Maybe he was like the idol worshippers of Petra. Or maybe he was like the idol worshippers of Canaan and worshipped his gods with temple prostitution or child sacrifice. Abraham worshipped other gods. But did he come to his senses? Did he read a book on the merits of monotheism? No. I took him. God intervened. God took him from being a worshipper of other gods and brought him to himself. I took Abraham... And so I took you, Israelites, from worshipping other gods. Not only did I take you from worshipping other gods, I defeated your enemies. He lists there some of the descendants that God gives them, verse 3 and 4. And then he simply says, and his sons went down to Egypt. There's a lot in those few words, isn't there? Joseph gets sold by his brothers, do you remember? Ends up as a slave in Egypt. He ends up in jail. He rots in jail for a while until the Pharaoh needs some dreams interprets. He interprets the dreams, becomes prime minister and saves thousands of people, including God's people, from famine. But God simply says, his sons went down to Egypt. That's all you need to know at this point. The action is, verse 5, Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. You came to the sea. The Egyptians pursued them with chariots. And they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the sea. He brought the sea over and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. God says, I took you from worshipping idols, and I defeated your enemies. He lived in the desert for a long time. There's a lot in those few words as well, aren't they? They grumbled and God provided for them. They refused to go into the desert, so they wandered in the desert for another 40 years. But he doesn't mention that. No, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. I defeated your enemies there. Then I brought you into west of the Jordan, the promised land, verse 11. And I defeated your enemies there as well, Jericho, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I defeated your enemies. I took you from worshipping other gods and I defeated your enemies. And not only that, says God, then I gave you the land. Verse 13, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. You were worshipping idols. 
You did nothing to defeat your enemies and you did nothing to get this land. I took you, I defeated the enemies, I gave the land. I gave you all the land, it says in chapter 21. And the very strange bit at the end of Joshua where you get these funeral notices, these burial notices about uh, Joshua and Joseph and Eliezer, what's the point? They were buried in their inheritance. God gave them the land because he is the promise keeper. Look at all I have done for you, God is saying. I counted 15 times in this section. God says, I did something. You did nothing. I brought, I took, I defeated, I gave. Look at all I have done for you, God is saying. And as we read it today, as we live this side of Jesus, we are not the Israelites. But the Lord says the same thing to us, doesn't he? Look at all I've done for you. You worshipped other gods, whether they were religious gods or secular gods or simply yourself. You were dead in your sins. You followed the ways of this world. You were a corpse and I made you alive. And I took you from worshipping other gods And I defeated your enemies, God says. You were held in slavery by sin. You couldn't get out of it. You were held in slavery by your fear of death, which you knew was coming and could nothing about. And I defeated the one who held you in slavery and set you free from your fear of death. I defeated your enemies. And not only that, says God, I gave you a land. Not the land of Canaan, it's a great place to visit, but it's just a land. Now we have a better land, don't we? A new Jerusalem, a new promised land that can never perish, spoil or fade. That's our inheritance. And we get a portion there that we did not build or plant or earn. God says, I took you, I defeated your enemies, I gave you the land. Look at all I have done for you. What do you think God expects the Israelites to do at this point? What does he hope that they will feel at this point? How does he want them to respond? How does he want us to respond? To be thankful? That's it, isn't that? To be thankful at all that God has done for them? To be thankful at all that God has done for us? I'd always known the story of John Newton. Have you heard of it? That he was a slave trader, dead in his sin, worshipping money and stealing people that he might kill them on the voyage through neglect and then sell them for profit. He was a slave trader and God took him and had mercy upon him. But just at the moment, I'm reading a biography of him, a children's biography with my son. And I'm finding out that it's not just that God had amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me who worshipped other idols. Again and again, he lived in fear of death because he saw people, his friends, dying around him. And God saved him again and again. Grace taught his heart to fear. Grace, his fears relieved. And he realized finally that God had given him an inheritance that would last more than 10,000 years. We're about three quarters of the way way through the book. He sings a hymn that he's written to his wife. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And my eight-year-old says, 
You didn't tell me he wrote that hymn. He's a Christian. He was a Christian who knew all that the Lord had done for him. And he was thankful. Can you see, if you're a Christian here tonight, all that the Lord has done for you? That he took you, he defeated your enemies, and he's given you the land. And are you filled with thankfulness? Do you feel that? Do you tell him that? And do you tell other people? The Christian message is a message of a great free gift. But notice, won't you, that Joshua immediately makes a demand. Joshua has gathered the people in the presence of God and he speaks on behalf of God. He has spoken the words of the Lord, but now Joshua speaks. He applies it to them. Verse 14. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. As you read through the next couple of verses, it's very clear what it is that Joshua thinks they need to do, what the response needs to be to all that the Lord has done for them. They are to serve the Lord. The word serve gets mentioned in two verses five times. Though there is this word worship there, isn't there? In verse 14, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. That's what Abraham did, do you remember? He worshipped other gods. Verse 2. What does that mean? Is that what the Israelites are to do? Are they to worship the Lord or are they to serve? We struggle to know, don't we, what worship means. I said before that maybe, how was it that they sacrificed to their gods? Surely they had rituals for doing it. And you see people today doing worship, don't you? When I was in Israel and Palestine, we even saw it on the video tonight, there were people who went on pilgrimages and then they would bow down when they got there and kiss a rock as if it was somehow going to give them a special blessing. I even saw the dead body of a saint that's been there for 1,500 years and people come from hundreds of miles away to kiss this glass around the dead body because that's worship. They built extraordinary beautiful buildings because that's worship or locally you have extraordinarily powerful music experiences because that's worship. But what if I told you that the word worship was not there in verse 14? There is no word worship here. And the word worship is not there in verse 2. Oh, yes, there's a word, but it's exactly the same word as the word that gets translated serve. Do you see that in verse 14? Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if I ask you what does it mean to serve the Lord, well that's not hard to work out, is it? The Israelites, after all, served the Egyptians. They were slaves. They were owned by the Egyptians and they did what the Egyptians said. Straightforward, you are owned by the Lord. He brought you out of being slaves to the Egyptians. He's 
brought you to his land where you can be his people so that you serve him. It means to honour the Lord, to obey the Lord, uh, to serve him and do what he says. We are to serve the Lord. And the sooner we get clearer on that, the better. There's something else here about serve as well. What Joshua says to them in verse 15 is really very strange. Have a look at it. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. When you first read it, you think it's reasonably straightforward. Choose today whom you will serve, Joshua says, either the Lord, the true God, or the non-gods. The idols. But that's not what he says. He's already told them to serve the Lord, but, verse 15, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then let me give you another choice. Here's what you need to do. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the God your forefathers served beyond the river, Abraham's idols, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are now living. Choose one of them, says Joshua. What a bizarre thing for Joshua to say. Does he think these people, these, these gods are gods? No, they are non-gods. And yet he's encouraging them to make a choice. Choose from this non-god or from that non-god. Why, Joshua? They're both stupid. Why doesn't he mention the fourth option? The Lord, non-god non-God, or what's the fourth option? No God. Serve no God. That's what we think, isn't it? That's the other option. In fact, that's what we think most people do. They don't serve God. They simply choose no God. Do you see? Why doesn't Joshua mention that? Well, because the people in those days weren't silly enough to think that there was such an idea of there being no God. But more importantly, the Bible realises that you have to serve someone. That there is no option to serve no one. That every human being is a servant, is a slave to someone else. No one is a free agent. Romans 6, you're either a slave of righteousness or a slave of sin. Ephesians 2, you either follow the ruler of this world... Or you've been made alive and you serve Jesus. But whatever you do, you've got to serve somebody. It's just as that Nobel Prize winning poet put it, Bob Dylan, have you heard of him? He had a song, his poem went like this, you've got to serve somebody. You may be a construction worker and working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You can see why he got the Nobel Prize, can't you? You've got to serve somebody. And Joshua says, look at all the Lord has done for you. Now serve the Lord. 
Is this stark choice really necessary for the Israelites? I mean, there are points in Israel's history where they really need this laid out for them, don't they? Do you remember Elijah when virtually the whole nation was worshipping Baal and he had that great sacrifice competition and he said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, worship him. If the Lord is God, worship him. That's what they needed to hear, surely. But these people are different. Back in the last chapter, Joshua said to them, you have held fast to the Lord. Surely we are different and we don't need this stark choice. But actually the choice is always the same. The Lord or another God. And for the Israelites here, this was very much a live issue. Did you notice what he says to them? The shocking thing he says in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Did you pick it up? Did you pick up the thing that they have? Things. Let me read it again. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What is the shocking thing? What is the thing that they have? Gods. Do you get it? Had it ever occurred to you at this point that these people had brought gods with them out of Egypt? How long have they been carrying around these gods for? 45 years. Carrying around in their saddlebag. Doesn't matter how big your handbag is, ladies, you would not keep something in there for 45 years without meaning for it to be there, do you see? And that's just the gods of Egypt they've been carrying around 45 years. The gods from beyond the river, that's Abraham's day, that's over 400 years ago. And they've been God's people, the Lord's people, all that time, and they've been keeping their idols all that time on the side. And Joshua says, how about you throw them out if you're going to serve the Lord? It's like Joshua is there presiding at the wedding, do you see? And there is the groom who's made all these promises. The, 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 Joshua says, you've got to forsake all others. And the man says, yes, I'm in for that. I want to love and cherish her as long as we both shall live. And Joshua hears all those vows and you're about to hear the bride gives the same vows, you know. But he looks at the bride first and realises he needs to say something first. And he says, before we go any further, how about you just turn around and say to your boyfriend over there that it's over. And when you've done that, when you've thrown him away, then we'll get on with it. That's what Joshua is saying. Actually, it's worse than that because they had the wedding, do you remember, back at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20. That's when they made their promises to each other. And since then, the Israelites have been carrying around their idols. And so it's like a couple where the man has, has discovered that the woman has been committing adultery with someone else. And she then says, yeah, look, let's try and work it out. But if it doesn't work out, I'll just keep him on the side in the meantime, all right? 
and expects him to say, okay. Is that okay? No. So Joshua says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your fathers. The people do answer. They say, we will. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord. Really? Joshua presses them harder. Verse 23, and this is where it becomes really obvious that they really do have these idols. In case you're in any doubt, perhaps Joshua was just using a metaphor with this throwaway thing. Verse 23, now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Do the people say, yes, you're right, we've got them, we'll get them, we'll throw them out, and you read that they throw them out? No. They just say, yeah, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him, full stop. I think you know what's going on, don't you? And you do wonder, don't you, how long is this marriage going to last? Did they need to hear this stark warning? Yes. Well, do we need to hear it? What is it that we need to do? We need to see all that the Lord has done for us and be thankful. We need to hear straight away that all that the Lord has done for us means there is a demand, a demand to serve him only and to throw away other gods. Is that stark choice really necessary? Are we really in danger of serving other gods, of Buddha and Krishna and idols and statues? I can't possibly imagine anyone here tonight bowing down to a statue. It is inconceivable to me. Even the Christian cliche that we immediately pull out of the bag at this point, that we don't have statues, but we have the gods of, of money and our house and popularity and education. I think that's true in our society. They are the gods of our society. But I don't really think that's where it's at for you and I, if we're Christians here tonight. I don't think we really have those as our gods. I think it's much deeper. I think it's much more personal. I don't think it's out there. I think it is in here. How do you work out what it is that you need to throw away so that you serve the Lord? The word serve helps you. We're to serve the Lord because he is the one who deserves to be served. And we are not to serve others. He alone is the one who deserves it. And so the question is, what is it or who is it that you serve instead of the Lord? What is it that is more important to you than the Lord? Who is it that is more important to you than the Lord? And so when I walk in the door at the end of my work day and I'm feeling tired and what I'd most like is to rest and be appreciated, what is it that is most important to me? Who do I most want to serve? What do I most want to serve? Is it that I most want to serve God and the others he has given me? Or do I most want to serve myself? and get the rest and appreciation 
I want, do you see? Who do I serve? If you have a conflict at work, or you're in a bit of a fight with friends at school, what is it that is most important to you? Is it serving God and others? Is it bringing honour to him by the way that you conduct yourself? Or is it more important that you get your own way and are shown to be right each time? Or when there's an opportunity in a conversation to say something about Jesus, to share some truth about him, what is it that's most important to you? What do you most want to serve? Is it to serve God and others by telling them about him? Or do you most want to serve yourself and preserve your own comfort and peace? Serve the Lord, says Joshua, and throw away the other gods you serve. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see all that you have done for us and to be filled with thankfulness. Father, help us to see that that immediately leads to the demand of the gospel, that we serve the Lord who has done all this for us. Help us to understand what that means. And Father, help us to know our own hearts in the situations we face day by day, Help us to see where we have other gods, where those gods are most often ourselves and our own desires. Father, help us to turn from this. By your Spirit, please change our hearts that we might serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name.